0: I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to go ahead and turn to uh, Exodus chapter 25. i reading from uh, verses 1 through 9. We're going to actually be covering uh, three chapters this morning, but we're going to be focusing in on chapter 25. So hear these words from Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses. Tell the Israelites to take an offering for me. You are to take my offering from everyone who is willing to give. This is the offering you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Fine linen and goat hair. Ramskins dyed red and fine leather. Acacia wood. Oil for the light. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx, along with other gemstones, for mounting on the ephod and breastpiece. And breast they are to make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle, as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. So we are continuing uh, our series here in uh, Exodus, back to Exodus after a little bit of a hiatus this fall. And um, if you're anything like me, when you get to, uh, unless you're Nate Fall, uh, who led us in music this morning, when you get to passages like this where there's lots of geometry and construction happening, uh, it's easy to kind of allow your mind maybe to wander Uh, Nate does this professionally, is in construction, and some of you guys, you get to this passage, isn't like your favorite part of the Bible, all the furnishings and the detail and the order and the engineering, Uh, this is your thing. For me, geometry was my worst subject, and I cannot think abstractly at all when it comes to seeing these things. So I I tend to kind of struggle and get lost, uh, and maybe, honestly, sometimes skip over this section uh, to get to the more exciting parts, right? Um, and so, I don't know how much time uh, you've spent um, thinking about the tabernacle, but it, it begs the question here, um, why, so, so we've had these great acts of deliverance in the book of Exodus, right? Lots of action, God liberating his people, uh, the last couple weeks we've talked about, the last couple sermons in this series we've talked about uh, Mount Sinai and God giving the law and then last week the covenant, all these exciting kind of manifestations of God's presence and his power and his liberation, Then we get to the back half of the book, and I noticed even in some of the other like preachers that I follow, everybody skips, a lot of people skip this section, or they just kind of condense it down into like a single sermon and say, yeah, 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 like tabernacle or the golden calf or whatever, Um, but here's the question that we need to wrestle with uh, because from a literary standpoint, um, the fact that Moses spends 13 chapters of the last 16 talking about the tabernacle should get our attention. And the question we have to ask is, why does Moses spend 13, like he could have done this in a chapter and said, yeah, here's the tabernacle, done and on, right? But he stops, and he goes into so much detail. Matter of fact, um, what we see here in the first couple chapters gets repeated in the back half of this 16-chapter section, Uh, again. And anytime there's repetition from a literary standpoint, it should draw our attention to, uh, in, in other words, it should be like blinking lights that say, pay attention, Right? And so why does he spend roughly a third of the Exodus narrative writing about the building of a portable tent? Right? Like, regardless of what you think about camping, right? And that's don't make no mistake, that's what's happening here. God is going camping. That's essentially what the language, even it's very earthy language here, right? God is building a portable tent, a mobile home, if you will. So why does Moses spend so much time detailing the building of this tent, what's the big deal about the tabernacle? Now, here's the thing. I would argue that when you really get in and you study this, um, you begin to see the tabernacle is so central to the Bible. Understanding the tabernacle and understanding what would later become the temple, the building of the temple, which is patterned after the tabernacle, many people believe actually included, like they built around the tabernacle and included it in the building of the temple. Uh, understanding this reality is actually essential to understanding the nature of God. If you don't understand the tabernacle, you're not going to understand who God is and why he came. Understanding the nature of God, understanding what it means to be human, that you've never thought about that, like you don't really understand what it means to be human unless you understand the tabernacle. And what it means to be a church, and ultimately, I believe this is a microcosm, Of the entire narrative of Scripture. When you understand the tabernacle, you begin to see this pattern show up everywhere in the story of redemption, right? This so filled the imagination of the writers of Scripture that it just continues to pop up over and over and over again. For instance, if you read the book of Psalms, the church's worship book, it talks about tents everywhere. They talk about sanctuaries everywhere. The words that are used here, there's a couple of them. One is uh, the tent of meeting. One is the sanctuary, and one is the tabernacle, right? These are all synonymous terms for uh, the tabernacle. You begin to see this show up everywhere in the Bible. So I I want to uh, just spend some time thinking about this together, and then I want to talk about what I think this means for us, because the Bible actually tells tells us what this means for us today as people who no longer have a physical tabernacle or temple to enter into. So one of the first things you'll notice, there's, there's a couple different, I guess you call them scenes. If you think about this like a story or a movie script of some sort, there's a couple of different scenes when it comes to understanding temple or tabernacle language. Um, one of the first ones that you see um, right here in the beginning of chapter 25 is that even the grammar and the imagery that's, that's given to us here is intended to evoke a memory. It's intended to evoke a memory. This isn't the first time the Bible's talked in tabernacle or temple language, right? All the language here that you see um, throughout uh, chapters 25 to 27 is intended to evoke a memory of Eden, a memory of the garden, a memory of the first tabernacle or the first temple, the early chapters of Genesis, right? So we start... Before we can understand the temple here, we must start by going back to the first garden temple, right? God's first temple. You see this um, throughout the narrative, uh, throughout chapters 25 to 30. Uh, For instance, God speaks seven times to Moses, and then he talks about Sabbath. That should remind you of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God talks about here, through Moses, uh, this idea of these precious metals, Right there, we to be gathered together to build the tabernacle, to build some of the elements found within the tabernacle, the Ten of Meeting. All of these elements you find in Genesis chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden. The most precious of metals, the most precious of materials gathered to build a home for God. We see the tabernacle, excuse me, the, the lampstand presented like a tree of life. Very similar language there between the tree of life in the garden and the tree of life. It represented in the lampstand. We see cherubim, which we see in Genesis chapter 3 and 4, and we'll talk more about here in a second, over the Ark of the Covenant, right? So let's go back to Genesis for a second and talk about this idea of uh, creation as God's tabernacle, as God's temple. In the ancient Near East, a, a tabernacle or a temple was essentially a sacred space. It was a, it was a sacred portal where heaven and earth collide, right? Even even outside of the Bible, if you look at ancient Mesopotamian culture, temples were built everywhere, and they were essentially meeting places between the realm of God and the realm of human beings. They were where heaven and earth overlapped or collided. These temples were constructed as dwelling places for the gods. You see this in Babylonian culture, right? You see this all over cultures in the ancient, ancient Near East. These temples would often have a garden that were built for, essentially, the gods' leisure. Right? The gods would leisurely stroll through these gardens, and they were intended to be places of rest. We also see that in these gardens, they would build an, an image or an icon to represent the gods. Right? That was very common in the ancient Near East. So, when we go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, John Walton, who's an Old Testament scholar, Argues that what we see in the language of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is precisely temple language. God is building for himself in the entire universe, the entire cosmos, a garden temple complex. We see God um, building out a garden, right? A, A place of rest, a place where he strolled with his image bearers. We see God placing His icons, his image-bearing representatives, not statues, but living beings, right? Men and women created together to represent him to the world, to reflect his glory to the world, to show the world what it looks like, what he looks like. So the garden becomes a place that represents the presence of God. The garden becomes a temple that God inhabits, and it's a place where the presence of God can be experienced in an unmediated, unhindered communion. An unhindered intimacy between God and his people. Now we know quickly that begins to unravel. That communion is disrupted. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve profane God's temple By attempting to pursue what is essentially an alternative temple system, they they pursue autonomy from God rather than communion with God. And consequently, they're cut off from the presence of God. Right? That's what the end of of kind of Genesis 1 through 4 presents Adam and Eve being put out of the garden, cut off from the presence of God. And lo and behold, what's there to symbolize the, the disruption of communion? Cherubim. The cherubim with the flaming swords, fire, the fire of God, the judgment of God, saying you are no longer welcome into the presence of God. Your sin has separated you from God. You've been alienated from the presence of God. And that's really the story of humanity is this longing for communion with God, this longing to return back to Eden, to return back to this sacred space. And yet, because of our sin, there is a barrier between us and God, we are alienated from life with God. If you think about it, every culture, really since the beginning, other than maybe you could argue our own, has had language to describe this longing for tabernacle, this longing to transcend our earthy limitations, to connect with the divine, to find that portal where heaven and earth collide. And yet, a sense that there's a barrier between us and that divine presence. Right, And that's why there's all kinds of rituals and sacrifices. If you look at all of the ancient civilizations, they had uh, ways to mediate that that connecting of heaven and earth. And yet we live in a time now where we've essentially jettisoned that. We think everything that we need is found right here in this material world. And we no longer see barriers between us and God. We approach God very casually. So the question that confronts us from the early chapters of Genesis is how is God going to restore communion with his image bearers? Is God going to do that? What does it look like for God to restore that communion? And, and what we find is we cannot get back to Eden on our own. We can't get back in. We can't force our way back into communion with God. So God promises to bring Eden to us. God living among his people was actually the overarching purpose of of deliverance and the exodus in the first place. That's what he says in chapter uh, 29, 45 through 46. Remember, we said this isn't just about freedom. The exodus, God, all of these mighty acts of deliverance, all of the plagues are not just about freeing us from something. That's how we think of freedom and how we think of liberation as modern Americans. It's freedom from constraints. It's freedom from laws. It's freedom from anybody telling me what to do and impinging on my autonomy. But freedom in the Bible is always a freedom to, right? Not just a freedom from, a freedom to. And we see that in the book of Exodus, you're not really free until you're free to worship God. Freedom's purpose is always worship. That's what we were made for, communion with God. And so the tabernacle is God reopening a way into his presence. A new sort of portable or, or mobile micro-Eden, right? This is a taste of heaven on earth brought into a piece of land in a very particular time and place in human history in the ancient Middle East. Now, with that understanding, now we can step back into the narrative in Exodus and understand a little bit more about what's happening in the tabernacle, because the tabernacle uh, is this, it's this paradox, right? It's a paradox Uh, representing this fundamental dilemma introduced in the earliest chapters of Genesis. The word tabernacle literally means a place where holiness dwells, a place where holiness is. So we see the fullness of God's presence represented and symbolized in the building of the tabernacle. And it represents that fundamental paradox from the earliest chapters of Genesis, the paradox that, on the one hand, God wants to draw near God wants to make a home among his people. He wants to walk in the garden with his image bearers in unhindered, unfettered communion. And yet, the second piece of that paradox is that a holy God cannot live among an unholy people. And a holy God cannot live among an unholy people without divine mediation. It's impossible. God desires intimacy and yet because of our sin, God cannot dwell amongst, amongst an unholy people without some kind of divine mediation of his presence. So we see this paradox represented throughout this tabernacle narrative, right? On the one hand, God wants to identify with his people and be intimate. I mean, even the idea that God would build tents. I mean, think about uh, kind of the, uh, the social architecture at the time, the religious architecture at the time everybody lived in tents. It was a mobile community. They were nomads, and they were in the middle of the desert. God doesn't construct some kind of stone mansion, right, in the middle of there. He, he moves in and he identifies with them by saying, as you live in tents, so I will live in a tent as well. I mean, there's identification and a desire for intimacy, but also there's differentiation, and there's barriers to the presence of of God, right? I mean, God's presence literally, think about this, is the centering reality of this Israelite community. God moves right into the geographic and kind of religious center of the community. He literally moves into the Israelite neighborhood. He says, I'm going to be the centering reality in this community. And what that does is two things simultaneously. One, it heightens the awareness of of the barriers that have been created by sin. It is a, an enacted, like, literal reality where they begin to see, wow, there is a holy God living among us. And, and, it also foreshadows the resolution of that paradox, right? The, the temple, the tabernacle, doesn't ultimately resolve the paradox. It anticipates the resolution of the paradox, but it doesn't solve anything r- for right now. And so we see that happening here. There's this kind of, if you want to use physics terms, there's this centripetal and centrifugal thing that's happening here at the same time. On the one hand, there's this inclusiveness. God is inviting people to experience his presence. And on the other hand, he's saying, whoa, be careful. Wait, don't come casually into the space. And that's why they erect a number of barriers between God and the people. J. J. Matir, who's an Old Testament scholar, says it like this. The people would soon discover that although the Lord was the central resident of their camp, and as the sequence of entrances apply, implies, there was a way into his presence. He was not, so to speak, at home to all callers. In this way, a dilemma was created. The provision of entrances, and yet the implicit erection of a sign that said no admission. God can be approached, but only in a very specific way. That's the holiness of God. Now, it's hard for us to get our minds around the holiness of God. It's hard for us as modern readers to understand this because our view of God is so sentimental, i.e. sappy, right? Like our views of God as modern people are very sentimentalized, intellectualized, and abstract. It's hard for us to get our minds around what the Israelites would have experienced with the presence of God. What it truly meant to be in the presence of God was not just to know the right doctrine about God. It was not just to see God as a philosophy or to see God as a series of ethical invitations, right? To know the presence of God was to know a real and powerful presence, right? God's presence is symbolized throughout the Torah in very concrete natural terms right like things like fire and and wind and earth uh, and natural disasters where do you think they got this stuff from right natural disasters hurricanes right strong wind thunderstorms right this is the idea of supernatural activity now supernatural doesn't mean from like another world altogether. The, the idea of super is it's beyond nature, right? Not that it's anti-nature, it is heightened nature, right? It's actually, I would argue, reality. It's the fullness of what nature is intended to reflect. And so when we see these symbols, it should point us to a, an embodied, like embodied ideas, right? Raw and authentic power and love and reality and joy Injustice. That's, that's who God is. He is ultimate reality. He is the purpose for which nature is created. So the problem here that's presented in the tabernacle is that God's presence, you could say, is intense, to say the least. It's intense. It is this intensity. His holiness is so intense that it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Right? Right? And and we cannot approach God because of that casually or cavalierly or inappropriately. And again, it's hard for us to understand this, but let me just try to use the only analogy that I can think of in terms of the intensity of God's presence that that we might encounter on an everyday basis. The sun. Not S-O-N, some kind of cheesy, like S-U-N, the actual sun. So the sun, I mean, think about a couple, uh, it was last year or the year before last, we had the big eclipse And in my kids' school, they they allowed all the kids out into the lawn, and they gave them those goofy glasses that you you have to wear because if you look directly at the sun, even though it's 93 million miles away, it is so intense that it can damage or destroy your retina with a glance, right? The the rays from the sun, we have to wear protection, right, sunscreen, because over time it, it can destroy the cells in our skin, right? I mean, this is the power of the sun. It's a flaming ball of gas. Right? And even at that distance still is so disruptive if it's not contained properly. If we were just a little bit closer to the sun as a planet, we would be incinerated just a little bit further away and we would be frozen out. We wouldn't be able to have habitable life on this planet. So think about the sun. Now I want you to think about a microcosm of the sun that might be a little bit closer to our reality. Uh, think about uh, a nuclear explosion, right? That's probably the greatest microcosm I could think of when it comes to uh, the intensity of the sun, right? Some of the greatest scientific breakthroughs in the last century involve us learning to harness nuclear power and energy for the purpose of electricity. But here's the thing about a nuclear power plant. You see this, right? A nu- nuclear exposure, exposure risks mean that we need lots of protection, right? There's all kinds of protections in place. If you live around a nuclear power plant, you see some of the protection, some of the space that's required, concrete, water cooling systems, special lead line suits that if you go into a nuclear power plant, you must wear for fear of exposure to radioactive energy. So here's what I want to suggest to us, that although it sounds cool for God to live among us, for God to actually move in and become neighbors with the Israelites was much more like them opening a nuclear power plant in their backyard than a yoga studio. Now, it sounds awesome to have access to nuclear power, right? Like, you're cooking out all the time, right? You have just unfettered access to electricity, right? But you live next to a nuclear power facility, right? That's dangerous. Exposure to radiation can be fatal. I would argue that's exactly what's happening here in the tabernacle story. The tabernacle brought together the intensity of God's presence. The intensity of God's love, God's justice, are all brought together and manifested right in the middle of the community. And here's the thing. They needed to be protected from it, right? They needed to be protected from the dangerous intensity of God's love and His justice. Because here's the thing, we cannot handle the fullness of God's love without being overwhelmed. We think we can, but we, we actually can't. We, can't. we can't handle God's love breaking out. like It would overwhelm us, nor can we bear the fullness of His justice without being destroyed, and that's what it was being symbolized in the tabernacle. Um, I have four kids. And uh, when, especially my kids are younger. It's a little bit more awkward now with my 13-year-old. But when my kids were younger, they would, be, they would always invite me, like especially at bedtime as we're kind of laying in bed and we're snuggling and we're telling stories about the day. Especially My youngest daughter is very energetic. And, and literally just about every night she's like, Daddy, please tickle me. Right? It'll be some version of please tickle me or don't tickle me, which means tickle me. Right? And so we're playing this game. And inevitably, like, as a, as a good father, I know those spots to press with each one of my kids that's unique to, like, really, like, overwhelm them with just joy and laughter. And usually it'll end with somebody peeing in their pants or something, you know. And that's kind of like the end of tickle time. But, you know, you reach that point where there's the crescendo, and they're like, ah, and they're screaming. They're like, I can't handle any more laughter. I can't handle any, much, any, any more joy, Right? Like, my body literally can't handle it. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher back in the 19th century in London, said this about the love of God. He says, the love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions, writing about his church in the midst of revival, that we have almost had to ask God to stop the delight because we could not endure anymore. If God hadn't shielded his love and glory a bit, we would have died for joy. Isn't that interesting? Died because of joy. Like there's a kind of ecstasy that can actually kill you, right? Like you know that. There's a kind of ecstasy, and I don't think I need to spell it out, that can actually give you heart attacks and you can die. He says that's what it's like to know the fullness of God's love. We've so overpoweringly experienced the love of God, sometimes we had to ask God to stop because we were afraid we were going to die. There's an intensity, a purity to the love of God, to the justice of God. And so the tabernacle becomes a safe place, a lead-lined suit, if you will, in the midst of the intensity of God's presence dwelling among them, offering them protection from the intensity of God's holiness. We see that throughout, you see this uh, next slide here, the picture of the actual tabernacle in the way that it was constructed there are multiple layers right the most intense spot was in what you call the most holy place all the way up into the left there in the most holy place which was kind of the hot spot of God's presence there was the ark of the covenant so go to the next slide the ark of the covenant covered by these cherubim and anytime you see cherubim and cherubim are, are woven throughout the curtains throughout the tabernacle if you go on to read these are signs of warning Warning, you are approaching the powerful presence of the divine. You are approaching the, the connecting point between heaven and earth. Watch out. Be careful that you don't tread lightly, casually, or irreverently, right? And these cherubim kind of stood over top what's called the mercy seat. And it's not really a seat. It's just it's a covering. It's an atonement cover, And this is the place God speaks here in chapter 25 and says, I will meet you at the mercy seat. I will speak. My presence will be manifested. The fullness of my glory will sit above and between these cherubim. And it can only be approached, I can only be approached once a year by a priest. And we'll talk more about the priesthood next week. Once a year by the priest who has to come in and he has to, Throw out incense and do all kinds of rituals to enter into the presence of God, and they would tie a rope around his waist in case he died in uh, the presence of God. Right, and and so there's all kinds of restrictions and regulations. My point is, go back to the the previous slide. My point is, there are protections built in to signal the holiness of God, the most holy place to the left, the holy place to the right, then another curtain right then the courtyard then even outside of the tabernacle you had the community of the priests and the levites that lived right outside the tabernacle courtyard then you had the people right this is patterned hebrews 9 says after the very dwelling place of god himself these are shadows representing heavenly Realities, teaching us something about what it means to be able to experience unhindered, unfettered communion with God. That's why there's gradations throughout, protections throughout the most holy place to the holy place to the courtyard to the people. Now, as the story unfolds, we begin to see this paradox continue to work itself out in different ways. You go on then to the next scene, the rest of the Old Testament, fast forward 500 years later. King Solomon actually builds the physical temple, right? The fulfillment of the tabernacle after the pattern of the tabernacle. And we see this scene in 1 Kings 8 where the presence of God fills the temple of God, right? And it's a, a day of great joy and celebration because, again, God dwells among us. We have found our way home into the presence of God, which is our deepest longing, our deepest desire. That's followed, though, by the rest of the story of the old and as the story unfolds, we realize that generation after generation continues to fall into patterns of rebellion and idolatry and injustice. And it leads to judgment. Right? It leads to Ezekiel chapter 10 giving us a vision where God's presence withdraws from the temple. And eventually the temple is going to go on and be destroyed, decimated, stone by stone, Right? Piece by piece, torn apart in the sixth century. And and if you understand, again, this is not just about buildings. This is not about real estate. This is about the presence of God. And you can understand then why this centrality of God's presence to the identity and mission of the Israelite community explains why they're so devastated when the temple's torn down. It's not because they're just about ritual and, and rules and laws. This is symbolic of the very presence of God departing from amongst his people, right? This is not like, hey, our building just got sold to developers, okay, for cash again in the city. Like, this is not like, oh, we don't have anywhere to meet for Sunday worship. We're going to have to go to the public high school or, you know, like our th- this is like our entire way of life and thinking and being in the world just got upended. That's what's happening. In other other words, all purpose and meaning is gone. The holy ground of heaven on earth, this portable Eden, is now gone. Communion, once again, is disrupted. The forces of sin and chaos and disintegration being held at bay by the presence of God are now being unleashed. And what we see in Uh, the later prophetic literature, and in Ezekiel, is essentially the reversal of Exodus. Everything that was happening, their deliverance from slavery, now they go back to being enslaved by the Babylonian and Persian empires. And they're going to go on to eventually rebuild the temple later on in this post-exilic community. But here's the thing, God's presence never returns to the temple. There's no story that we have telling us that the presence ever returns, and so there's a gaping wound in the the, the kind of the imagination of the Israelite community. It explains why, again, the elders are weeping in Ezra 2 when the temple gets built, and they look at it, and they go, that's it? That's it? Oh my gosh, this is not what we thought it would be. It's only an echo of its former glory. There's a holy ache for the return of the presence of God to dwell among his people again. And you see that in cries in books like Isaiah over and over and over again. God, would you return? God, would you bring your glory? Ezekiel 48 actually ends with a vision of God returning to his temple, but a temple that now is not just for the Jews, but also for the nations. And then what? 400 years of silence. 400 years of feeling like God abandoned. Until what happens? John chapter 1. One of of Jesus' disciples writes this about Jesus. Read this next verse. The word, Jesus, became flesh. And he dwelt among us. You know what that word dwell is? It's the word tabernacle. Jesus came, and he tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, a key word in the last 16 chapters of Exodus. We have seen the fullness of God's presence, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The divine has come, not just in patterns and symbols, with curtains and cherubim. The divine presence has actually come to live among us, full of this paradox of grace God wants to draw near to us in truth, but we are an unholy people, right? And so Jesus embodies this paradox. That's why when he says in chapter 2, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, that's the kind of stuff that got him killed because they knew exactly what he meant. He's not claiming to just be an ethical teacher or a philosopher. He's claiming to be the presence of God returned, And that's why they kill him, because they understand he is proclaiming his divinity. He is saying, I am the temple embodied. I am fully God, the presence of God, desiring to be intimate with his people, and I am also fully human with all the vulnerabilities and all the weaknesses of a human. I am that paradox in a body. Wow. God draws near to his people in the person and work of jesus and the death of jesus and yet sacrifice is needed to restore god's presence and his intimacy with his people to give us access once again to communion with god that's why when you get to the end of all four gospels and they're talking about the cross you notice how much tabernacle language they invoke there That's why it says at the end of Matthew, the veil is ripped in two. What veil? The veil separating the most holy place from the people. The veil with the cherubim on there. The veil that separated the people from the intensity of this nuclear power that is such a, a minuscule, even idolatrous comparison or analog to the presence of God. This nuclear, intense Presence of God. Now that veil has been torn in two, and now we can enter the most holy place and have access to God's presence. Do you realize what a privilege that is to have access through Jesus to the presence of God? That's what's been restored to us. That's what's made available to us. And so we go on to see finally the church. Then in this great twist in the story that I don't think anybody could have could have guessed. The church becomes the temple of God's Spirit. The church becomes the actual embodiment of the person and work of Jesus. What was localized in one particular place, in one particular God-man in Palestine, in a particular moment in history, now begins to spread out through the entire world. That's what's happening with the church. We, both individually and corporately, are now God's tabernacle or temple. We are the new portable Eden. We are the colliding of heaven and earth. That is what is happening as the church gathers together, preaches the gospel, makes disciples, celebrates the sacraments, and lives out our mission in the world. God's presence lives within us, and we embody that paradox of grace and truth. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says it like this, Do you not know you are God's temple? And God's spirit dwells, lives, has made his home, not just among you, not just in the center of camp, in you, inside of you. Not just individually, but corporately, he's saying, you, the church. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You are holy. Not only us corporately, but us individually. 1 Corinthians 6 Paul goes on to write, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? This is not about smoking cigarettes, okay, if you grew up in church, right? Your body is a temple of God within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God has made his home inside of you, inside of us. And our destiny one day is Revelation chapter 21. Revelation, we have the new heavens and the new earth. I was talking to my daughter about this yesterday. We don't go up to heaven somewhere in some kind of abstract, ethereal place where we sit on clouds and strum harps. Heaven and earth comes down to us. There's no longer a temple. There's no longer the need for a tabernacle because what? God dwells with his people. He is the centering reality of the new city, the new Jerusalem, the Garden of Eden, now become the city of Eden. God will live among us there'll be no need for a temple because now we have access to the presence of God once again so let me just suggest a few quick applications for us as we go to communion what does all this mean for those of us living right now in this time in between the coming of Jesus the first time and the coming of Jesus to re-establish the kingdom of God Three things, I think, at least, and I'm going to take this straight from Hebrews chapter 10. The book of Hebrews, if you've ever read it, it's very confusing. It's all about temple and all about Jesus becoming the new temple. That's why we don't understand it, because we don't understand the tabernacle. We don't understand temple. Now that we understand temple, we can go back to Hebrews chapter 10 again, and we can see a couple things. What does the writer of Hebrews encourage the church to think about when they think about temple? At least three things. One, we should have confidence in our relationship with God in approaching God on the basis of a grace-based relationship, not religious ritual, trying to do things to curry God's favor. So look, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us come near to God, not stand back in terror, but come near to God, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We now have access to God. Lest you think this is just like, you know, old pedantic, antiquated, like teaching on tabernacles and temples and and like, you know, idols. uh, Every culture, every human being is created with a deep existential ache for a tabernacle, a meeting between heaven and earth worship, for the presence of God. If you don't believe that, even if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're a thoroughly non-Christian person, secular person, whatever, read David Foster Wallace. I mean, just read his writings. He talks about this all the time. We are created to worship something or someone. And our hearts are restless, as Augustine says, until we find rest in our creator God. We also feel the barriers to that presence. We know that we don't belong right? That's why we feel shame. That's why we feel guilt. That's why we, we get close to the real God. We begin to feel nervous because we know we're approaching the nuclear power plant. And what Hebrews says is because of Jesus, we have access to grace-based communion with God. If and only if we come through the sun. We cannot come to God through our own terms, on our own terms. We can't manufacture access. There's no key fob anywhere where we can replicate and try to create other avenues of accessing the presence of God. We, and no, no amount of meditation, no amount of getting out in nature because that's my God and I'm going to go you know, boating on the weekends. That's my, that's my way of connecting with God. No, that is not the way we have access. I'm not against boating, okay, just to be clear, but that's not access to the presence of God. Knowing the right information about God is not the presence of God doing good deeds in the name of God is not access to communion with God. Those are shallow and insufficient means of trying to connect to the presence of God and they will never satisfy the deepest longings for tabernacle that are inside of you. However, if you have the Son, Jesus says, you have life. You have the presence of God. You don't have to live in shame and fear or guilt. You now have unhindered, unhindered access to to the holy of holies praise god secondly community right community not just access to god community this why this is why it's so important to be committed to a living body of believers look at this let us consider then in light of all that we just said about the temple how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together In all of the mundaneness of the church and the boringness sometimes of just gathering together and going through the rituals and singing, like, why do we do that? We don't do it, he says, just to come to church. We do it to stir up the presence of God among one another. It's like taking a big stick and we stir each other up towards reminding one another that we have the presence of God and that we are the beautiful, as Peter says, living temple of God himself. That's what's happening as we gather together on a regular basis. We encourage one another, right? As we gather, we're not just singing songs to one another. We are singing them in the presence of God. We are opening up a portal of sacred space between God and our community. That's why it's important that we come to church. That's why it's important that we gather in homes and we eat eat meals together and and we serve in our community because we are the living representation of the tabernacle and temple of God. Only together in community with others can we display the beauty and the manifest wi- the manifold wisdom of God and help encourage one another towards our identity as God's temple. And then lastly, just quickly, holiness. I'm not going to read the remainder of this passage to you, but he goes on to talk about how this changes the way that we think about sin. Sin is not just breaking rules, like abstract laws, He says sin, sin is not just repression or the moral thing to do, breaking the moral code, or whatever, like sin, sin is a defacing and a vandalizing of the beauty of God's temple. What we do with our bodies, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, individually and corporately, matters because it says something about the holiness of the God that we worship, the wholeness. That word holiness means wholeness. And so we don't seek to put sin to death just because we're afraid of punishment, right? But rather we pursue holiness because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and sin defaces and vandalizes the beauty of God's home. And so I just want to close by asking us that question. Do our lives together demonstrate the wholeness of and the integration, and the unity, and the generosity, and the justice, and the love, and the grace, and the mercy of our God. That's what's at stake as we live our lives out in the world. Let me pray for us, and then we're just going to take communion together, and I want to invite you to come and receive This reminder that you are the living temple of God. That God's love and God's truth came together in the person of Jesus. And that's what we celebrate here. This is the great paradox. The body of Jesus broken for us. The blood of Jesus shed for us. Opening up, reopening a way into the presence of God. That's what we're celebrating here at communion. We come and we take this bread and we dip it in this cup. And we're reminded that the only way to access the presence of God is through Jesus. And so come. Come and receive by faith this love and this grace and this truth that was poured out for you so that you could become and we could become a temple of the living God. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here, but we'd invite you to stay in your seat as others come to receive the bread and the cup. We'll have stations in the front, in the back, and then in the balcony outside. Um, So let's just take a moment. Let's confess to God uh, our sin. Let's ask God to be with us and come draw near to us in this time of communion and fellowship together. We'll sing a couple songs, and we'll send you back out into the world to live as God's holy temple. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you have come near to us. God, that you have resolved this tension of a holy God living among un- unholy people, and that, God, you invite us to come home, to come back to the place where we belong, the door that we've been knocking on for some of us our entire life, trying to get in, trying to feel like we belong, trying to connect with something that... Our restlessness and our angst and our anxiety points us to, but it never truly answers. And God, we know that that is communion with you. God, we desire to to be with you, to make a home with you. And God, you've made a way for us to come through the front door and sit down and to enjoy your presence forever. So God, help us to receive this gift that you've given us and to live a life of communion. We were created to know you in your unhindered presence forever. And so, God, we want to claim that and grab onto that as our only hope, joy, and life is of happiness. We pray this in Jesus' name.